Uh, I want you to think this morning about what comes to your mind when you think about the process of salvation. Maybe what comes to your mind when you think of the question, how can one be saved? And as you think about that question and whatever answer pops up in your mind, I want, to, I want you to evaluate the nature of your answer. Is your answer primarily, can it be primarily described as understanding that following is a core component of that salvation? Or does your mind go to formula? In other words, you A plus B equals C salvation. Because especially throughout the 80s and 90s in the churches I grew up in, formulaic preaching was kind of a trend. And, and if you could come up with clever formulas, then um, you know that was seen as having a pragmatic application of your sermon. So, so like if you're preaching on prayer and you say something like, you know, you know, faith plus confession equals miracle or something like that. I don't know. I just kind of pulled that out of the top of my head. But I, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. And so we, we've come to talk about salvation in that way. What does it mean to be saved? Well, it means to affirm these beliefs and then to speak the affirmation in this prayer. And I've got it memorized. I can, I can lead you through it. I think it is a mistake for us to read the scripture and say that salvation is a formula. Salvation is about following. And so what many of us may have discovered is that we did the formula, but because we weren't adequately discipled in what it means to follow Jesus, our experience of church and salvation did not lead to the victorious, sin-free life that we were told that it would lead to. Because there is no freedom from sin without the heart following Jesus. Or that's my revelation, and that's what a lot of people have come to. So that salvation is not secured a success formula that you apply. It is in making a decision to follow Jesus. And the truth is, in a very real way, that decision has to be made every single day of our lives. And in some days you may find that choice has to be chosen several times throughout even one particular 24-hour period. Some days, frankly, it's easier to follow Jesus than others. Uh, some days are harder to follow Jesus than others. And, and so, but, but our salvation is experienced. That's what, the word I want to say is experienced. People want to get in these kind of discussions, these metaphysical discussions, at what moment in time the person gets saved, born again. I don't know. I will never know. And um, I mean, if I ever ascend to some godlike state where I can create my own universe, I'll let you know how it's, how it's going to work in my universe. However, I'm not expecting that to happen anytime soon. And, uh, and I am comfortable with saying I have no idea how that works in the mind of the Spirit of God. But what I know is this, is what I can see from the scriptures, particularly in the teachings of Jesus, is the emphasis that he brings is follow me. We have created a culture almost where there are Christians and their disciples. And they're all housed in the Christian movement, but they're a little bit different. You know, the Christians are the ones that just don't take this too seriously. 
They, they say the prayer and they get their Bible and they attend semi-regularly to church. They give their money and they, and they volunteer. And that's all great because that is all part of following Jesus. I'm not belittling that. What I'm belittling is the idea that there are two tiers of Christians, those who are believers and those who are disciples. Now, I don't know how many churches flat out say that, but the attitude is in the air. And it comes, it comes, it comes subtly. Like, we wouldn't say it that way. We would say, well, there are carnal Christians and there are spiritual Christians. We'll use that term to create these two tiers. Or, or, or maybe, um, maybe, let's see, what's the one that's more popular? Oh, people love to pick up books on how to be living the radical Christianity. But what, what is immediately happens with that? Immediately we take information like that, and instead of running to the tree of life, we go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to get our nourishment, and then we start making categories. And now all we've done is increased our division because now there's not just Christians and disciples. There are radical, there are Christians, disciples, and radical disciples. And if you really want to serve Jesus, you're part of the radical group, which means that creates a contrast with all the rest of you boring people that are just cogs in the wheel. And that's a mistake. We are all on a journey and we're not measuring that journey by the, our limited ideas of success manifested through our lives. Our question at the beginning and the end of each day is have I learned to follow the Holy Spirit and so that I live a life of increasing, this, increasing faithfulness to Jesus? That's the question. Because salvation is a formula, it is following Jesus. And therefore, once we understand that, every single one of us, if someone was asking us of the nature of our spiritual development, we should be far along in this walk of faith that we can say, here are the practices that empower me to follow Jesus more faithfully. And if we can't answer that question, then it might just be that we're so in the flow of the Spirit that we're just not conscious of the actions we're pursuing. I think that's a possibility. I hope to be there one day. But it's also likely we're not aware of it because we actually don't have practices. So we actually don't have any kind of intentional posturing of our heart to, to do the work of silencing our mind, attending to the voice of the Spirit, so that we can live a life in the flow or the rhythm of the Spirit. And so it's important that all of us know how those, how those things happen. Now, more than likely, there are more of those practices than you realize. You just probably haven't taken the time to identify them and articulate them. And I would implore you, take the time to identify those practices and articulate them. Because salvation is experienced in the moment-by-moment moment following of Jesus, not simply by acquiescing intellectually to some sort of formula that has been handed down to us, not from the words of Jesus, but from the opinions and the words of teachers and theologians, etc., etc. So with that in mind, let's take a look at one of the most transformative paragraphs, I believe, in all the Bible. I mean, the, the, uh, what is always interesting in reading the scriptures is that every once in a while you'll come across a passage of scripture where you read it and you say, it's really all we need. Like if we had nothing else but this fragment, it is all that we need to live a deeply satisfying life of joy and love and forgiveness and service to others. Let's see, what are some of those places? Oh, off the top of my head, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. That's one of those places. 
If you live with that sermon for, say, I don't know, 100 days or so, just random ideas, if you live in that sermon for 100 days or so, you may have moments where you're like, this is really all we need. Like, if we could just do this. Well, this is also one of those passages that like, man, if we didn't have much other than this paragraph, this paragraph alone is enough to radically transform the expression and experience of our faith. So let's take a look at this, these verses, verses two, uh, chapter two, verses one through four, and then we're going to spend our time just thinking through verse one this morning. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now, as we've talked about before, and as I've modeled in here before, sometimes it's helpful in your first reading to take out the modifying prepositional phrases and see if you can't just kind of get to kind of the heart of the primary idea that's in one of Paul's paragraphs, because Paul is notorious for in the Greek writing long sentences that are about a mile long filled with different modifiers and prepositional phrases that kind of go on little rabbit trails as he's continuing in the same vein of thought. But we're going to do the reverse this morning. Sometimes then it's important to take a moment and pull out those, prep those modifying prepositional phrases and then take a moment to meditate and contemplate what they might mean. We're going to do that this morning because what you'll see in the flow of this when we read a paragraph like this, oftentimes what people take away, understandably so, and maybe even rightly so, is that the paragraph is about living humility, which, which is true. But if you look at the way Paul structures this paragraph, what you will see is there is an assumption built in to those who are able to respond obediently to Paul's call to humility. There are four phrases that Paul lines up and I would suggest to you, these are not merely for the use of an impressive letter writing. The other thing you'll see in chapter two is as we talked about, this has mainly been a thank you letter of encouragement. This is when it begins to shift. This is where Paul begins to say, okay, there are some real practical outworkings to this encouragement. Outworking number one is you have to pursue a life of humility if your community is going to be successful. And so, but, but, but then in there in one line, he says, but... There's another reality that has to be experienced before you can display humility. Humility is not a virtue that you can um, acquire through discipline. Some of them are, right? Humility is one of those you can't acquire it. Uh, you can't acquire it strictly through discipline. All that might mean is that you are acting humble. And sure, through discipline, I can pursue attitudes and choices that make me appear humble, I know because that's how I navigated most of my life in Christendom and rose through the ranks. I didn't actually have to be humble. I just had to know how the people in my circle heard humility communicated from me. And as long as I figured out that formula, then I just kept getting pat on the backs. 
That is not the same thing as being a humble person. That is me acting like a humble person. There's another word for that that Jesus has, and it's called hypocrisy. So at some point, I begin to realize, man, acting humble and being humble are not the same things. So then what do I do in order to be a humble person? And here's the thing, nothing. If you want to cultivate humility, the question is not, what do I do, but what do I need to surrender and allow God to do? Because these first four phrases are about what God does inside of us. And so again, it's this reminder, the Christian faith is a faith of the heart. It is about what takes place internally that then impacts the way I live my life so that the fruit that comes from my life is directed by the activity of the Holy Spirit, not me reading 10 steps to be a more humble person and then white knuckling my way through it until I get consistent. That is not Christian discipleship. That is maybe some kind of self-improvement. And if it's working for you right now, great. I don't want to take that away from you. Anything that you're doing to look more like Jesus, I think is wonderful. But I'm saying, ultimately, it is about this. You have to recognize that our faith is radically relational. And that radical relationality begins within the sphere of our own heart. And then it gets manifested outwardly and socially. But that inward journey is absolutely necessary for a consistent life of increasing conformity to the image of Christ. So what are, so what, what I am suggesting this morning as we look at this one verse is this idea that the only way I can participate in the humility of Christ is by experiencing the grace of Christ in my own heart. The only way I can participate in the humility of Christ is if I experience the grace and mercy of Christ in my own heart. So here's what Paul says. Notice the first two words, if then. So that means you can't skip verse 1 and just go straight to verse 2, which is the instruction about living a holy life. There's, a, there's an enormous clause there that begins with the tiny word IF, not intermittent fasting, but IF. IF THEN, here are four statements. There is any encouragement in Christ. IF THEN, there is any consolation of love. IF THEN, there is any fellowship with the Spirit. If then there is any affection and mercy, then you can make my joy complete by thinking the same way. But this is a prerequisite. The only way that we have anything looking like humility, and ultimately where Paul's going, is the only thing that we have that, that we can experience anything looking like unity is if as individuals and as a community, we are allowing the Holy Spirit to take us on this inward journey. So let's just take a moment and meditate on these four sentences. Number one, if there's any encouragement in Christ. All I've done this morning for your notes is, an, uh, and, and for those of you who are disappointed because there's not enough of my clever application statements in there, I apologize. I'll try to get back to that next week. I'm sure you get here and you're on the edge of your seat waiting for those. Uh, this morning, I just wanted to kind of share with you the substance of the material I was meditating over as I thought about uh, uh, speaking about this passage this morning so that you can have it and you can use it as an, a tool of your own meditation. So first of all, these two words, encouragement and Christ, this word encouragement means simply calling to one's aid. That is to say, it means encouragement or comfort. 
Now, I, I am sure that we would all say in some generic sense that Christ comforts us. When I would say that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be saying Christ comforts me in the same way I'm saying that my friend Derek gave me a, 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 an encouraging phone call and Derek encouraged me. Because what I'm talking about there is I'm talking about a relationship in which Derek takes the initiative to speak words of encouragement to me that actually may have an impact on my whole emotional atmosphere. But when I say Christ encourages me, what I mean is, oh, I believe the theology about Christ, and because of that, I have assurance that in some mysterious way, God's going to work everything out, and that one day I'll get to be in heaven, and I'll be with Jesus, and I'll be with my loved ones, and I'll be with my pets that died, and, and I'll play football and eat lots of food, but not gain weight. But we have to shift what it means to be encouraged from Christ from this cerebral realm of ideology and back to the realm of a friend being willing to make a phone call and speak into us. There are two words for the, the idea of words in the scripture. One is the way we use it, this kind of idea, this message that is longstanding and permanent. But the other word that's used oftentimes in scripture, and it would be an interesting thing to look up the different places where these two words, is the word rhema. Now, rhema is more in the moment. It is more temporary. It is the needful word for the moment. So there is a word about the faithfulness of Jesus that if we come to him in prayer that he will answer us. But then there's that time in prayer where the Lord speaks and says, where you made a misstep already is this and you need to go apologize to it. That would be the rhema word of God from me from these. Now this backdrop of this ideology that I have that says God is faithful and involved, that's encouraging. But when the spirit says you need to go apologize for this, that's powerful. Because that then allows the spirit to actually bear fruit in my relationships, which ultimately is where this thing is going. Everybody can be holy by themselves, or at least do a much better job of deceiving themselves that they're holy. Where it really gets challenged is in the context of relationships and community. So this encouragement means that we have come to the place where we've cultivated a posture of heart where Jesus really is one of the means through which we seek comfort and consolation. That like our relationship with Christ isn't historical or ideas about the historical Christ, but our relationship with Christ is this ongoing of experience of the present moment living Christ who comes to us through the, his spirit, which was given to us as the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And again, as we saw in Colossians, the impetus then becomes, I live from the reality, the revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And then he says from Christ, and of course we know that this is talking about Jesus the Christ, but I thought it was helpful to look and see exactly what that title means. It means that he's the anointed one. He's the anointed one. He's an, and which means this, if you're going to begin to explore a living from the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory, then what you're saying is the anointed one is in you as the hope of glory. Now think about that for just a moment. The anointed one dwells within your soul. He's always present. And as I read that, I immediately thought about a verse that I've pondered many times from 1 John that I want to share with you. I, I don't know if I have it on the overhead, but it's certainly in the notes. 1 John 2, 27. 
as for you, the anointing you received from him remains where? In you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So again, do you see how the language of scripture orients our faith, not externally in doctrinal statements and creedal statements, although again, they have their place and I'm not poo-pooing them, wiser men than I put those things together. But what I am saying is, if you see the scripture, the object of your faith is not in these exter external statements that were crafted by men, regardless of how well crafted they are. The impetus for your faith, the authority of your faith is resides within you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've been given his anointing. You don't need someone to teach you. You just need to listen to this anointing that already has been given to you as a gift. It already resides within you because our faith is a faith that works from within to, with, uh, to, to the outward expressions. And so John reminds us, you've already received that anointing and, and it's true and it's not a lie. And it, as it teaches you, you remain in him. Remain in the truth that, that, that the anointing, which is the presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, how it teaches you, that's the direction you go. This word anointing, in fact, is referring to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, guiding the receptive believer into fullness of God's preferred will. My friends, there is a teacher in your soul. Are you listening? All of this external stuff that comes to you is supplementary. The sad thing is we've discipled people to look to the outward teaching as being primary and the inward authority as being secondary. We have mistaken this. Thank you, Carter. Right on. The primary residing place of the authority of God leading and teaching you is within. And then the secondary is without. And that's done in community. And there's a place for teaching gifts. And there's a place for increasing our rational understanding. Obviously, I believe that's true. Or I would have sought a different career path. But in all humility, I recognize it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not for me to point people to information about to Jesus, but to encourage and point people to the presence of Jesus. And he'll take over from there. That's why I don't feel the weight of responsibility for everyone's faith that is part of my ministry. I just want to point to the one that can keep you consistent. This guy probably can't do a very good job of that, as some of you know more than others. But he can and so we recognize that this authority comes from within. We seek the spirit and we recognize there's a teacher in, your, in our souls. Are we listening? 
And the other follow-up question then is, what practices are equipping you to listen and increase your sensitivity to his persuading? What are you, if I came to you and said, I just don't, I was, that was interesting what already said, but I just don't know how practically you do that. How do you do that? What would you tell me? What are the practices that I can visualize as you're telling me? Or if I just said, you mind if I just spend the next 72 hours with you and um, sleep in a cot in the corner of your bedroom? Okay, fine. These are the practices you're going to see me doing that are part of the regular rhythm of my life. And these are the practices that empower me to continue a life of focused, increasing faithfulness to Jesus. What are your practices? We must cultivate a lifestyle of listening. We must, not a lifestyle of hearing information so that we can form a response, but a lifestyle of listening. The second phrase we see in there is if there's any consolation of love. And again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. It's kind of an outworking of the same principle of the previous sentence. The consolation simply means encouragement, and love means love and goodwill. So essentially he's saying, have you in your heart, do you regularly experience the encouragement that flows from understanding the love of God? That's how we get consolation of love inwardly. Now, externally, that happens because we learn to be the body of Christ. But inwardly, this happens because we are living a rhythm that continually reminds us of the joy and the beauty of being comforted by the love of God. This is, how we, this is our consolation. And this is not, we're not going to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but what I am learning is this, when that is in short supply is when my addictions begin to increase. When I'm not seeking that inwardly by allowing a rhythm of life remind me that I'm called to live in the love of God, then I have to get that consolation somewhere else. And unfortunately for me, I am wired to seek that consolation in expressions that end up being self-destructive to me. But when they're self-destructive to me, you better believe that spills over to the people who depend on me or who love me the most. And so rather than just don't do that, I've got to learn how to live in the consolation of God's love in order to keep me aligned so that I don't have to pursue the false comfort of idolatry. Then he says this word, this fellowship with the Spirit. It's the word that we may be familiar with. It's the word koinonia. It means participation, sharing in, and communion. Communion, which is one of the core values of Christ's community church. When we say communion, we are not just talking about the once a week where you come take the elements. We're talking about a lifestyle of participation in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Participation in a relational aspect of my, our walk with God. That's what we mean by communion. That all of it flows out of the rhythms of grace that are established through the experience of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is God's presence within us, making us collectively the temple of God. And, and we recognize that there's an inward journey where we live in friendship with God via the experience of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. 
What does that look like in your life? Have you ever thought about it? If I came to you and said, I would like to understand this, tell me how it works in your life. Could you clearly, without confusion, articulate to me, sure I can. Here's the experience. Let me tell you a little bit about the experience of my secret life in God. And now let me tell you about the practices that empower me to consistently walk that kind of relationship so that I'm being slowly but definitely led toward increasing faithfulness to Jesus. Fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Communion. And of course, this word spirit is pneuma. It means wind or spirit. And that's going to come in later. It's very important that we understand that it means wind, spirit, and breath. I don't have time. I'm running out of time here, getting a little hungry. But this idea of breath is fascinating to me. So that means when we say Holy Spirit, we're talking about holy wind, holy spirit, holy breath. You know, what the scriptures testify at the creation of mankind is that man was formed out of the dust of the earth and was not animated until God breathed his breath into his nostrils. That's what the text says. God breathed his life-giving breath into the nostrils and then he became a living soul. And so this is really important because it highlights the intimacy of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is as close as the breath that is continually sustaining you, both when you're conscious of it and when you are not conscious of it. The breath is still there, moving in and out of your lungs, sustaining your life. This is the metaphor that the scripture uses for describing the life of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if there's any affection and mercy... Now, this word affection is very important because what it's talking about, this word in the Greek is talking about the inner part, inward parts. I said innered. I said all week long, I was not going to say the word innered this morning. And then, bam, right out of the gate, I said it. Yes, yeah, your innards. That's what he's talking about. The inward parts of the body. That's what this word refers to. In other words, it's, this, it's the internal um, Organs. That's why, have you ever heard someone say he had a visceral reaction or I had a visceral reaction? What that means is my emotion was not casual. I like felt it from within my gut. Something caused me to react either in fear or in empathy or in anger. Have you guys ever experienced visceral emotions? Okay, this is the part of your soul that the spirit is intended to inspire and motivate. So we're not just drones kind of following the advice of, of our religion or trying to follow the rules of God. We experience the life of God in our heart that transforms us. So not only do we know what to do, but over time our heart is turned to long to do what God calls us to do. And that, my friends, is called liberty. There is no liberty in trying really hard. But when the Spirit brings a transformation down to the depth of who I am, the, 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 the depths of my psyche, which is what this word talks about. It's talking about a real experience of God that goes deeply inward and moves us to the level that there's even sometimes a physical sensation attached to our love or our empathy or our mercy or our gratitude. This word is the capacity to feel deep emotions, sympathy, empathy, 
I know that it's cool because of Dr. Phil made it cool. But the truth is a follower of Jesus should never belittle emotions. That, not, that should not be talked about like it's the embarrassing part of our psyche and the embarrassing part of our makeup. My friends, that's your power. That's like saying a successful marriage, it's totally unnecessary to have any affection for your spouse. Is it technically true? Sure. Does anyone want to experience that? No. We got married so that we could love and be loved. And you should follow Jesus not in the hopes of heaven when you die, but that so that you can be loved, so that you can love. That's why we follow Jesus. That's how the salvation touches the world. Finally, the word study says it's a deep feeling, not just in our relationship with God, but also that extends toward others. Now, Am I saying that to be faithful to Jesus, you have to be on an emotional high? No, I'm not. I know I'm talking to a crowd that has been um, possibly made cynical because you were taught a spirituality that says following Jesus is easy. Um, you go to camp once a year and you ride the wave of emotions for the next two to three weeks. Now, the rest of the year is lousy. But man, that month is the sweet spot. Go off to camp, come back inspired, you live off that, and we've all seen that cycle, we've all participated in that cycle. So look, I'm not saying that we're always emotionally high, but what I want to challenge you with is this. Yes, our emotions should ebb and flow, but they should never be non-existent. This is not to place on you, you've gotta find your own journey, but I will tell you from me, if I go six months without being moved to some tears in my eyes over gratitude for the miracle and the beauty of my life, I know there's probably something unhealthy about my heart. If I don't ever have those moments of feeling overwhelmed by the love and mercy of God or by the love and mercy of my community, there's probably something unhealthy about my heart not saying we have to be all happy all that we have to be happy all the time but our emotional responses should never be non-existent that should be a living part of our communion with God visceral compassions well so how does this happen i'm glad you asked so get ready to close I want to remind you of our question. There is a teacher in your soul. Are you listening? And what practices are equipping you to listen and increase your sensitivity to his persuading? My friends, what I've learned is this. It's been very hard to think my way into better behaving. But I have learned that if I exercise faith and trust, I actually can act my way to healthier thinking by pursuing the actions in faith. It's not fake it till you make it, it's faith it till you make it. Because I assume that one day this experience will not be fake, it'll be authentic. And so I keep pursuing the behaviors that keep me in line that of, the, of the persuasion of God's will so that in following Jesus, the spirit transforms and renews my way of thinking. 
And so this can happen through practices. So one of the practices that I have found very helpful that I want to encourage you in is a practice that's known simply as centering prayer. It is so meaningful to me that in my life, I cannot comprehend how I would sustain the encouragement that's in my heart without the practice of centering prayer. It's become that valuable uh, to me. And, and, and it's not a way that I was taught to pray because I was taught to pray by being very verbal and being really emotionally zealous or stimulated. I mean, look, I put a cold water uh, bowl by my side of the bed with a wash rag in it so that I, six o'clock I could grab it and I would start slapping myself in the face with that wash rag. Then I would get up and I had a pair of army fatigues that we got at the army surplus store and I would put on the army fatigues because that helped equip my image as a warrior for Jesus, as a soldier for Christ. And then I would do, and I would get in there and I would spit and sputter and rebuke and I would do spiritual warfare for an hour. Now, I loved every minute of it. I enjoyed it. And not only this, I really enjoyed going to church knowing that all of you were not doing that, but I was. And I am not belittling that experience because God met me there. I'm not belittling that experience because it was truly a tool of growth. I'm not belittling that experience because it's still a part of who I am. But I did realize at some point, I needed to learn something larger than violent, war-oriented intercessory prayer. For, if nothing else, for the sake of my own anxiety levels that were, you know, my cortisol was up by the end of those prayer sessions. Nowadays, I want a little more serotonin than melatonin coming out of my prayer sessions. Sending prayer helps me do that. And so all you do is this, find a quiet place where you won't be interrupted. We are all night owls, so at my house, five to seven or five to six is, is a guaranteed pretty good time of solitude in the house. But find a place. You can go for a walk. You can sit in your comfortable chair in the living room. If you're a creative type, make some sort of Christian altar that you put candles on, whatever. But it's just, it's a place that signifies to you that this moment now, I'm proactively entering into some sacred space. Sit with your back straight. And I'll tell you in a minute, there are times that I lay down and do this. But the, the effects of, of praying laying down and the effects of me praying sitting up are really quite dramatic. And so I would suggest you sit down. Um, now, in the beginning, this is how I did it. You don't have to do this. I would set a timer because if you're not accustomed to this, you're going to be like, oh, especially you doers. And you're going to be like, okay, I'm wasting time sitting here when I can be doing something. Or especially you thinkers because you'll be thinking about all the things that you could be doing. Feelers, we tend to like this kind of thing. So I'll... I'll be fair in saying I'm sharing with you a practice that comes a little bit more natural to my temperament. Um, but I am also a thinker, and so it's taken a lot of work for me to get to the place where my mind is cooperative in centering prayer. So I want to say that you're going to have to practice at it, which is why you might want a timer. Just set it for one minute this week if you've never done it before. Then increase that to two minutes. But I will say your goal should be a minimum of five minutes. And you set the timer so that you're not looking at your watch the whole time or anything like that. Set it for five minutes. 
Optimally, I'll be honest with you, if you could work in a practice where you do centering prayer for 20 minutes, I strongly believe you would start seeing not just spiritual, but probably mental health, if not physical health benefits from the practice. And I'll be honest with you, I certainly have. This is, I, I'm a fan, not just because of the spiritual growth, but it has been tremendously helpful for me to steward my emo, emotional and mental health as well. So, so set a timer. Start one minute, your goal is five minutes, and then if, you're, if you want to really be a radical Christian, then you go 10 minutes instead of five. And then you can come and look down upon all those little normal Christians that only pray five minutes. Um, and so set a timer, and then what you wanna do is you wanna allow your body to relax. That means for me, take a big full breath and let it go. Now, for me, breath is really important, but I wanna explain to you why for just a minute even though we need to wrap up because I don't want you leaving all scared of these techniques that I'm talking about. Uh, uh, for, 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 for me, uh, take, taking a deep breath is very important simply because I went on a nerdy dive of reading a bunch of oxygen books and it, just go Google um, the, the consequences of shallow breathe, breathing over a lifetime. It, it blew my mind. I've got about four books I could recommend you. Won't loan them to you, but I'll recommend them to you so you can get your own. I'm still too stingy to let them leave my library. Um, but, so breath is really important. So I always take a moment, especially in understanding the, the, the drawbacks of shallow breathing, take that deep breath, maybe two or three of them. And at this point, that is not an act of discipline. It is something that helps trigger my mind, okay, I'm in transition. The bills that need to be paid, trying to figure out how to manipulate my wife and giving me the apology she owes me, all of these things go to the background. And instead, I'm gonna take a deep breath and this is about simply being in the presence of God. And so you take a few deep breaths, relax your body, and then you begin to notice your breath. Why do I do this? Again, for me, when I do this, it reminds me that the really, the reason why this soul is animated is because the creator chose to breathe his breath into my nostrils to make me a living soul. And for me, there's something sacred in about that. And it's almost caused even the idea of breath to be more sacred because it reminds me of the nearness of God. And so what I, now why do I pay attention? Because I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm ascribing to be a Native American Guru? No. I simply do that because that's the thing that makes me stop worrying about the bills and the church stuff that's going on and all the... It causes me to pay attention to simply the sensations of my breath going in and out of my nostrils. And so now I'm in the moment. It's an act of discipline to be in the moment. It's not about doing something tricksy with your breath. Um, so then you notice your breath and then you choose a sacred word. You can keep it to one or two syllables. So I've given you an example here. Maybe your sacred word will be silence or stillness or faith or trust, holy, glory, God, Jesus. That's a, that's a pretty common one that people, people tend to start with Jesus as their sacred word for centering prayer. It's, it's a good recommendation. You guys can go ahead and start making your way up to the, to the front. And so, so then in just a moment you'll see, uh, or you can practice breath prayers. More of that in a minute. But what I want you to understand is I'm not talking about a mantra. Now, again, I don't have anything against it. If that's your, that your thing, more power to you. But what I'm saying is this is not simply a mantra. In other words, it's a word that we use simply to begin repeating when our mind starts going, 
because your mind will go crazy and the goal is to not fight it. Let it take off and you just return to your sacred word. Jesus. 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 I wonder if I should watch that Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix that everybody's talking about. What did Tyler mean exactly when he said that thing in his text to me the other day? You think Jen's still upset about me burning the bacon the other morning? Then I go, oh wait. Now, old Artie would rebuke Artie. I don't do that anymore. I just go, Jesus, Jesus. And now all those things don't go away, but they just fade back into the shadows and I'm right back here in the moment. My goal is to get to where I'm not verbally saying the name anymore. I'm mentally saying it and I'm mentally returning, but I'm sitting there in utter silence. And all of a sudden, in the silence, in the stillness, the Holy Spirit begins to fill that space up like on the day of Pentecost. Now, I don't hear the sound of rushing wind, but I certainly feel the presence of the Holy and I rest there in that moment. I'm not trying to make something happen from it. Now, you're just ready to rest in the Lord. If your thoughts wander, refocus by returning to your sacred word. And at the end, when your timer goes off, take another two deep breaths and just say, here I am, Lord. If before I stand up and start my day, there is anything that you think I need to hear, I'm listening. Samuel did this one time. And the Lord, Yahweh, met him and changed his life course and gave him a destiny. So it's a pretty good practice. Here I am, Lord. I'm listening. Wait a few seconds and you get up and you go about your day. And the final step is this, number six. You have to refuse to label or judge your experience. The goal is not to have a vision. The goal is not to feel the Pentecostal goosebumps of the Spirit. The goal is not necessarily to receive a word. However, all of the above might happen. And I will say this to my Pentecostal friends. If you have experienced the gift of the Spirit called glossolalia or speaking in tongues and you've since grown up rashly and thought, ah, I'm not sure if I can participate in this, I would encourage you. Centering prayer is a great way to use glossolalia as your sacred word. So if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, that might be something you consider during your time of centering prayer. But you don't have to have that. If you're not a Pentecostal or you're not interested in that or it's just weird to you, that's fine. I get it. Just return to a sacred word. Now, we're stopping short of breath prayer because of the time, but next week I will work in a time where we will collectively practice breath prayers together. But for now, start with the sacred word. Start with centering prayer. And here's your challenge. Just at least do yourself a favor and commit to three sessions at least five minutes this week. If you're so inclined, I'd love to get an email and you telling me about your time or a phone call or a text, whatever your means of communication is. Would you all stand with me as we pray? The prayer team, please come forward. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together, I pray that we would leave here with just a heightened conscious awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit within the realm of our own soul. 
that you would begin to lead us and to teach us how to listen to the teacher, the anointing that already resides within us to be that primary leadership of authority in our lives because you discern us like no one else. As our dear brother Stephen Crane said, you look to us lit with infinite comprehension. And that's why we trust you. 